I decided to do what I'm doing now in a single moment. I went out of the shower, I told my wife, I'm quitting my job tomorrow. And I went and I quit my job. Welcome back to another episode of The Secret Sauce by Foodac, the global community of food entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm your host, Armin Anaturk, and today, what sparked this founder with the idea to quit his corporate job to pursue a path pioneering the world of 3D printed meats? All right, Eshkar, thank you so much for joining me. Your early life in Israel, you were raised in a kibbutz, which is essentially a collective community. What exactly was life like there and what early childhood memories do you have growing up? Living in a kibbutz, it's very hard to imagine. It's like a child's version of paradise because you're surrounded by family. And my grandparents live next to us and everybody in the kibbutz, hundreds of people are like your extended family. Everything is green. It's in the nature and you're surrounded by fields and animals. And you have so much independence in a very young age because you can just walk out of your home and you don't have this life in a building. You just live outside. You spend most of your time outside. At a very young age, you can go along to the kindergarten even and go back to the kindergarten. You can eat at home or you can eat in a dining room, which is an unlimited buffet of what I thought then was amazing food. And for me, I had bicycles from a very young age. I don't know if it was three or four. And I was able to just do whatever I want. And until it was dark, I was out with friends. And we would play games and we would ride our bicycles. I have now a five-year-old child. It's impossible for him to cross the road alone. And I was completely independent at that age. And then we left the kibbutz. Uh, when I was uh, about seven, we still kept the connection to the kibbutz until this day because my grandmother still lives there. Uh, so that's one part. And, and for me, the strongest memories is the fact that in the kibbutz, you go to the kindergarten, but it's much more flexible. So I used to join my parents to work quite a lot. And my mother worked in a dairy farm uh, where you had these big giant cows, very fascinating things that happening because you take the cows to milk them. And it's like a ceremony. It's like, it's like a parade that you walk with them and then you milk them. And I found it fascinating. And I used to join her and you do it very early. You do it around 4 a.m. So you can do it at night and then you have the sunrise and then you start the day. And there is something, a secret in the kibbutz. If you join the first milking of the day, you get a special breakfast. Uh, so these are one of my best memories from a very young age, walking with my mother to milk the cows. I read that kibbutz account for around 40% of Israel's agricultural output. So I guess you were no strangers to meat production. And you even said that your uncle had a restaurant where you kind of got acquainted to the realities of slaughtering and how a perfect steak ends up on someone's plate. I know in, in my family growing up, meat has always been a very staple of our diet. And it's almost a sign that my parents used to show that they were prosperous and, and wealthy. What was your relationship to meat growing up and how was it seen? In Israel, the kibbutz mentality is not really connected to eating high quality food. We didn't feel that way. But when we left the kibbutz and we started to live in the city, I suddenly became more aware of restaurants or eating out, which is something you don't have in the kibbutz. You always eat outside. That's how you do it. But in a dining room where somebody determines what you should eat to be nutrition and wholesome. And actually, I had another part of the family that has this embedded culinary tradition. So when we were out of the kibbutz, we had this experience of eating indulgent things we didn't have in the kibbutz. And that was meat from the same age. 
I started having experiences with my other grandfather outside of the kibbutz around meat. And, and in our family, it's like in your family. So if you want to celebrate something, if you want to, to show that you are enjoying life, you need to have meat on the table. A part of my family comes from Morocco. So it's a, a big leg of lamb that you put on the table. And it was steaks and even steak for breakfast. And as I grew up, I became more fascinated with cooking. So I began cooking at a very young age, around nine, in my home with my father and grandfather, making this fake restaurant dinners for my parents. So I was the chef and my sisters were uh, waitresses. And I went at nine with my father to the supermarket. I still remember to buy a steak because I wanted to cook a steak that I saw in a cooking book. And then I had this amazing luck that uh, when I was a teenager, my uncle had a restaurant in Tel Aviv, which is the big city where everything is happening. And because of this experience and upbringing of a kibbutz, my parents told me that I can go alone to the city in the weekends and just work in the restaurant. So at 13, I worked um, several shifts during very late hours in a restaurant in a big city, staying over at my uncle and aunt's house. Which again, it was a magical experience because everybody at this age go to school and stay at home and do things that teenagers did. And I did the things that people that were in university and after university were doing in this big city, drinking wine, you know, staying up late, cooking with chefs, having this philosophical experiences and learning how to cook and, and also learning how to eat good food. A lot of the first things I ate that opened my mind Two flavors and sensation were there. And I can tell you the exact composition of dishes that I ate 20 years ago there. This was the old Eshkhar that, that used to tell you about the steak that he ate and how we're waiting for slaughter to happen because it's amazing breed of new baby lambs. And at three weeks, they're, they're exactly the right age to eat their, their lamb chops and things like that. And, and today, I'm not there. Today, I'm eating mostly tofu. You really were a meat expert or connoisseur back then. I mean, it seems to be something that's so, so integrated to you. And even today, some of the things that you, you put out there on, on LinkedIn, I mean, you're very much connected to the meat, but working on the future of it right now. now. Now, staying on your childhood, do you think this early exposure to meat and being in restaurants and, and cooking, did it spark something in you that you knew you wanted to work in the field of food or gastronomy? Or was it just something that you were doing on the side until eventually going to university and finding a job elsewhere? What was sort of your career path or ambitions at the stage in your life? That's the first time anybody asked me the question. And it reminded me of something. When I was working in that restaurant, I had this chef that was like a mentor. He was probably 35 or 40 and I was 15. And he told me it's a terrible industry and it's a terrible job. Find a real job and keep this as a hobby. And for some reason, I don't know why, I don't know if it was not for this conversation, I thought I'm going to be a chef. I thought I'm going to work in restaurants. And I stopped at some point of time. I just you know, went on in life. In Israel, you go to the army and then to university. But cooking was really, it still is. It was a part of my DNA. I applied to the Supreme Court of Israel to have an internship there. And I wrote that I'm actually a chef that by accident became a lawyer. In your CV or your job application? Yeah, it was a job application and we needed to, to have a, like a piece of writing to see how well you write. And instead of doing something about law or about my studies in the university, I wrote how I accidentally 
became a lawyer when I'm actually a chef. And, and many people think that I'm an inspiring chef, but people that want to be chefs and want to be really good chefs, they're, they're devoted to that and, and they do it most of the time. And I'm not that one. But the other thing is I became fascinated with cooking, but also eating. So, so I went to eating in the best restaurant in Israel and then traveled the world to eat. And I knew that no matter what you eat, the most complicated, fancy, tasty thing that you can imagine, you know, a complicated molecular gastronomy dish or a three-star Michelin handcrafted dish, it doesn't compare to a really good slice of meat on the grill. And besides things that I like to cook, like I like to bake bread and cakes and I like to make some sophisticated dish, I know that the best thing that somebody can cook is red meat, beef, the right cut, the right aging on an open fire made by wood. This is the best food product you have. If you do it the right way, it's such a powerful thing that you can just be alone with the piece of meat and some salt and a glass of red wine. And you can have very strong experiences. And I really miss those experiences. So these are probably the reasons that I have this motivation to do what I'm doing and maybe it will sound funny because, you know, I quit my job and I open the company and, and there's a lot of challenges and I do it so I can relive these experiences. And they're very, very, very powerful. And for me, they're a complete different category in food, in eating, in culinary, in, in culture. Eating meat is not a part of food and not a part of cooking. It's, it's a separate world that is extremely important and powerful and interesting and complicated and common to almost all cultures around the world. Absolutely. And I really grew up with that strong meat culture. Every day you'd have a piece of meat and it was really something to be celebrated. And there's always a centerpiece of, of what we ate. And stepping away from that has always been quite difficult. And looking at all these plant-based alternatives, they're great, but I still miss a good piece of meat, just exactly as you explained, on the fire with a bit of salt and a glass of red wine. And that's what you're working on, right? It's getting that same texture, that same taste, but also that same emotional feeling that you have when you bite into a piece of steak. That's what you're trying to replicate. How are you going about doing that? And why is your approach to doing it different from what the others are doing? How are you approaching it in a different way? The honest answer is relates exactly to what you said. We have a very unique target. A lot of companies, a lot of great people, a lot of good friends of mine are working on meat alternative, alternative proteins, plant-based meat. Very few actually put a target and put in the DNA and what they're doing this experience that you, you discussed because it's very difficult. What we're doing is we're trying to make a piece of meat that is equivalent to an extremely good piece of meat that you can eat alone. It can be alone in your plate and you cut it with a fork and knife with a little bit of salt and a glass of red wine and when you bite it, you know this is one of the best things that you can eat now. And it's completely different than trying to make a good product with the right amount of protein or to make an alternative of a processed meat product that goes into a bun with a lot of the condiment and toppings. And the reason that we are doing something that is so different is because we believe this is meat. We believe that until we have this part of meat eating habits and industry and supply chain, then you don't start, you don't begin to address the big problems, which is meat. And this is something that is extremely difficult. And we can start by something simple. Let's do something basic and then 
go up from there. But we discovered, and, and I'm saying, but many other people say that because we have such a high benchmark of what is meat, what is tasty meat, what is the way we expect people to eat our meat, we actually have a very good food product, much better than we thought already from a very early stage. And this is, for me, the most interesting thing, how we make amazing meat. What's very important, but less important and less interesting, is the fact that we have a completely different technology and we are using a 3D printing approach. We're not using a 3D printer because we developed printing process that is very different than 3D printers. But if we want to simplify, we call it 3D printing. We build a digital file and we have a machine that assembles the steak product for us. It recreates what we want it to recreate in order to have this experience in your mouth and when you cook it on the grill, when you cut it with the knife, when you look at it, when you smell it, that is the closest thing that we can to what nature does inside the body of the animal. We say we 3D print meat and we take plant-based ingredients and through a 3D printer, we convert them to meat. But actually, if we were able not to talk with people and not to do podcasts and not to explain in pitches, but just let people eat what we're doing, then we don't need to explain. In many cases, when we meet new people or, or when we host you know, a chef or a butcher in our lab, we talk and we show them printers and we show them files and, and we explain about our technology. And then they eat something and they say, okay, now I get it. It's really tasty and it tastes like meat. The story, the technology is not relevant if you cannot put a piece of meat in front of somebody that can enjoy it. I would call you the most meat-obsessed non-meat eater. I think that's a, a good title for you. Maybe you should add that to your LinkedIn bio. <laughs> now, I haven't had the chance to try the redefined meat yet because it's obviously not available here where I am in Switzerland. But could you give me an idea on a scale of 1 to 10, how close is it to the real thing? You have a positive aftertaste and you have a negative aftertaste. Aftertaste is something that in some cases you want. You take a piece of meat from an animal. It has protein and it has fat and it has water and it has a few other stuff. And you have the same things in plant-based meat but they're so different. What happens to the protein in beef when you cook it, like Maillard reaction, you have Maillard reaction in pea protein, but it's different. And you need to overcome it, and it's a challenge, and you have some aftertaste. But actually, when you build a product like we do in a 3D printer, you have much more control on the different interactions that are happening in your matrix because you can control some of the interactions. You know where what we call mass of the protein is going to be, and you know where the fat is going to be and you know where most of the flavor is going to be in the blood that we print. This is basically how we build your steak. And you can overcome in a much more efficient way things like what you refer to as the, an aftertaste, and you can also impart a stronger aftertaste that is positive through the fat that you don't have in the meat alternatives that you're referring to. Still, when you eat our meat products, you know, day in and day out, sometimes without flavor, sometimes without color, uh, and you know the flavor of pea protein, you can sense the flavor of pea protein. But remember one thing, that if you have a good flavor and a good flavor delivery and the right amount of fat, then you can deliver to your palate a flavor that will last longer and will be more powerful than the aftertaste that you're mentioning. This is a problem today with other meat alternatives that are not 3D printed. You cannot control it in a way that makes this system efficient. When people ask us why do we use 3D printing or, or why it is important, you know, we talk in many cases about control. You have a level of control that is critical. And in our case, it's the control in creating 
these long fibers that are meat-like and aligning them like in a steak, but also creating non-homogeneity. And non-homogeneity, when you control it, is like a superpower. We can mess with your brain by the way we're 3D printing. We can decide what you're going to experience in the first two and the second two and the third two and the fourth two, which is really, really nice. And it helps with the aftertaste. We are always experimenting with the next version of the protein or the next version of a, of a new kind of protein to see if it improves in flavor. If it's But today, I think these are things that you're thinking about products that are out there in the market, but things that people are working on in regard to these elements are going to have a step function change in the coming years. Is there ever this aftertaste, as I haven't been able to try yet, do you have this vegetal aftertaste once you've had the products or... Does that not exist in your products? You look at what's available and what we have experience in. The traditional food industry, even the meat industry, has a huge experience with soy. And trying to do something new with soy is more easy because we have so much data and so much knowledge. And peas is available and and it started because it's not an allergen. It's soy-free and gluten-free. And then big companies started to use it. So so people have experience now in extruding it and and working with it. So it makes more sense to start in a place that people have knowledge on. If you look at things, and and there are many exciting potential in new protein sources, mostly from plants, but also from fungi, it takes time to people to study them. And you need people from the academia doing it or, or big companies. If people are using pea, then more and more people will use pea because anything else is a big risk and a big complexity. We have a lot of more niche or more exciting proteins in the lab and we tested and we have things that work really well and things that work less well but have potential, but you just can't get more. Nobody produces more. So how can we incorporate that in our R&D plans and how we can incorporate that in our go-to-market plan when you need quantities? But I think it's like many other industries If you can take peas and make meat out of them, you will see a big growth in pea crop production. It's much better and profitable to sell pea as meat than as pea. And eventually, if more meat alternatives will emerge, especially replacing beef, you will have a lot of excess land to grow crops on. It will take a few years because the supply chain needs to adapt. But again, this is not the challenge. You know, to, to be honest, I think the biggest challenges are making things that are really tasty. And if people will want more and more, and and this is what we're seeing now, we see growth in the supply chain that is supporting plant-based meat. The big companies are aware of that. Companies that control all of these commodities and the biggest part of the supply chain, they know what is going to happen in the next 10 years and how dramatic it will be in what we're doing. I think there's potentials there. Of course, I, I think there's a lot of protein sources that can become very relevant in the near future. But if you look at the realm of gluten, which is not very attractive or trendy, but it's very cheap and very effective, and soy and pea, uh, the potential just with those is incredible. And why is everyone using pea-based protein? Why not look at something else? Isn't it eventually just going to be too high demand of pea-based proteins and will we'll eventually you run out or we'll, we'll have supply issues? I think we will integrate many things because uh, we, we have a platform and the platform now is plant-based, but, but what we're doing is basically taking ingredients that other companies are producing and making formulations. We're not an ingredient company and, and we're working on the formulation, on the printing and, 
the product. So if something emerges that has a potential, we will use it and, and we're testing, we're collaborating with other startups now to see it for the long term. It's only a question of timeline. Because for us, one of the things that we set as a company, as a target, is to have and talk and work on a long-term complicated task that is very, very challenging from a technology perspective and might take time until we complete it, but to have something we can bring to the market fast. If we look at, at the food industry, things like regulation, approval of novel foods take a very long time. So we are now playing and looking in a very small team in the company that is called technology and innovation in long-term opportunities. But if you want to have a product in the market next year, then it should have things that people can consume today and there's not a process of approval. One of the things that people always tell me is, how does your product rank in the nutritional composition or, or the protein quality to beef? And when you look at fungi, one of the interesting things that I learned that you can have a better nutritional protein quality score even than meat from animals. And of course, in protein, you need to have a lot of things. You need to have functionality or, or texture or nutritional composition, off flavors. We need proteins that are good in all of these axes. And, and fungi has a potential. I see many other trends that are emerging that have a lot of potential. And, and we certainly want to be a company that is part of an ecosystem. So if more proteins are emerging, we're happy to, to work with companies with the relevant protein, but it's also right for fat, natural colors, that is really fun to play with and has a lot of room to improve. And there are many other things like that. Yeah, fungi is cool and, and people are talking about plant-based. We need to remember that fungi is, is a different kingdom and it's much bigger than plants. So we're not tapping yet the potential there. Absolutely. I think we're all looking into fungi right now to see how that could take off in the alternative protein space. And there's a lot of great startups working in that sector, but I think you're right. I think in focusing on, on the pea-based proteins right now, or do you think you might integrate fungi at, at some point at redefined meats? I look at it a little bit different because in food, you only have one phase, taste. If you ever feel that you, you mastered the first phase, you can talk about nutrition and cost. What we're doing, for example, this is an example, but there's many examples, we are creating a very good steak. If we have a very good steak that people can eat, we have a high quality product that people are willing to pay for. Then we can work on reducing the cost of our ingredients. Then we can work on improvement of the nutritional composition of our different source ingredients while remaining at the same taste level. I think that what is a problem now is that nutrition is extremely important and cost is extremely important. I don't think they're not important, but we have such a long way to go in, in taste, to simplify, to call it taste, that nutrition is not a question yet. I can tell you, and I believe in that because there are two amazing companies beyond meat and impossible foods. There is a debate in, in the newspaper and in blogs about their nutritional composition. Consumers buy whatever amount of Beyond Meat and Impossible Food that is available for them to buy. There's not a single hamburger of Beyond Meat that now sits on a shelf that somebody doesn't buy because it doesn't like the sodium count or it doesn't like the level of saturated fat in, in the coconut there. And I think this is when you talk with people in the food industry, they say, taste is king. Of course, you need to remember that when people buy it because it's tasty, they will buy it again and again because it's healthy or because it's cheaper than meat. 
but we still have a long way to go before we say taste is behind us. I think it's also related to where we see now the alternative meat trend really picking up. And as it expands to other countries, the nutritional perception of the consumer will become more and more important. But you need to remember that you need to create the opportunity to improve nutrition. If you have a product in the market that people buy, you can improve its nutrition. And I don't think these are a challenge. This is a challenge. Nutrition and cost is definitely not a challenge. If you take plants and you convert them to good meat, and the industry is big, then plant-based meat will be cheaper than meat. And I can, I can tell you from my perspective, we are talking with a lot of people that are nutrition experts, professionals, and in, in academia. There's not a single answer what is good for you and what is bad for you. It's a very complicated world with a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas, but nobody's eating too much plant-based meat to the level that it causes a risk to their health. And actually, if you reduce the amount of meat and you replace it by plant-based meat, most experts will say that it's improving your health, it's bettering your health. But alternative meat and meat are not health food. You don't eat a hamburger to get protein. If you want to get protein, you can eat you know, tuna from a can. You eat a hamburger because you want to enjoy it. And when you eat a steak, you don't say, I went to the gym today, I'll eat 300 gram ribeye steak. You eat it because it's tasty and you want to enjoy it and you want to celebrate something nice that happened. The discussion about the culture of eating meat and you know fine dining and pulling our tradition. For, for me, the, the alternative chicken industry is like a separate industry than, than the beef or pork or, or red meat alternative industry. And, and the motivation there is completely different and the reason and the strategies should be different. Hey guys, real quick, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love our private members network, Food Act Plus. Every Tuesday morning, we send a curated newsletter highlighting a key food industry trend or opportunity in the market, along with actionable insights to help you successfully launch, grow, or invest in your next business. To find out more, head to foodact.global slash membership and use the code SECRETSAUCE, all in caps, for a discount of your first year membership. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the podcast. What do your family think about you getting into the alternative meat industry? I mean, I assume, like you said, growing up, your uncle was in the restaurants and the, you were cooking a lot of steaks. What did they think when you said, okay, I'm going to get into alternative meats? Were they surprised or were they supportive? Wow, you want to touch the sensitive personal issues. I love it. This is extremely complicated. And I'll tell you why, because my wife never had meat in her life. She grew up not eating meat and red meat for her was never something that is food. And she's extremely happy that I don't eat meat and thinks this is the right way to go about it. She never tried to convince me to stop eating meat, but she's certainly happy that we don't have meat in our home. One of the most challenging things for me on a personal level, not, not that I regret it or not that we don't have amazing relationship, is that probably 50% of my relationship with my father and grandfather uh, that we are very good friends and we are very close, revolve around eating meat. For them, especially for my grandfather, my grandfather almost 90, he has a lot of sense of humor. He still tells me, so even today in your birthday or even today in Independence Day or this holiday, you're not going to eat meat? And he, he acts surprised. In my home, they're not allowed to bring over meat. But when I go to my parents, they have meat on the table. And he comes and he said, look, I made this leg of lamb for you. I'm sure you're going to eat it. Tell him, you know, I'm not eating meat for five years now. It's not only for my family, also for my friends, people that know me from different parts of my life. They know me as the guy who cooks meat. My hobbies were cooking meat. 
And I used to have big feasts in my home and people would come and I would make meat for them. And now I don't have the social gathering. I have less friends since I stopped eating meat. What sparked that initial change for you to go from such a heavy meat consumer to you know, deciding one day that uh, you, you would stop eating meat? To be honest, I, I don't know because I think it's something very deep inside. But I know what was the trigger. The trigger was that my first son was born and I became a father and becoming a father made me become a different person. I know that it's a cliche, but, but it's true. Everybody has, that has kids know that. And, and I became more aware of things. I became aware of what I need to do in my career, in my personal life, what I need to do for the future. And for some reason, on a subconscious level, I made this connection between meat and the animals that it comes from. And this is something that, that most people don't make the connection and the meat industry really wants to, to make this connection not happen because most people like animals. And animals are cute, especially if you grow up in a kibbutz and you know that baby cows are really like puppies or like babies and, and that cows are really smart. And, and most important, if you walk around the dairy farm, also, by the way, in lambs and, and sheep, it's amazing. You see the connection between a mother and her baby. Uh, you see affection, you see love, you literally see love, and you see deep sorrow when, when you separate the cow from the mother. You can hear the cow crying. It's literally crying. It sounds like, like crying. And when I had my son, everything connected, the dot connected between the steak that I'm eating and the cow separated from the cow and my son. I tell this to people and I have friends that eat meat. My family eats meat. I'm working with butchers. I tell them, would you eat my son? So why do you eat somebody else's child? I don't think that people that eat meat are terrible people. Like many of my friends, because I eat meat. Most of my life I eat meat. And my closest people in the family eat meat. And my friends eat meat. And I know they're not terrible, terrible people. For me, I have this personal decision that is not uh, logical, but it's very emotional, that eating meat is wrong for me. And the reason that I don't eat meat and the reason that I think we should pursue meat alternatives is so we'll stop the need to kill animals and eat them. I think this is important. And also there is a whole very big environmental issue that is important. We're using it to our advantage. We're using the fact that there is a huge problem that relates to everybody. And we need to face that as well. When was this realization? What year was it? And what were you doing at this time when you came to this realization? It was five and a half years ago, and I was eating a lot of meat at that time. I was a, a product manager in Hewlett Packard, working on, on the next generation of digital printing for the packaging industry, traveling all, all over the world to sell, market my product, and eating steaks with customers. Th that was my life, eating in steakhouses with customers. And then when eventually did you start getting the idea to make your own company? Was it something that... One day you woke up and said, I'm going to start my own company and you quit? Or was it something that you've been brewing in your mind for a while? When you start a company, it's extremely difficult to do it in a single day. So you have to brew the idea in your mind. The idea was not 3D printing of meat. It was doing something in food tech, doing something that is related to meat alternatives, doing something that will connect what I like to do and what I know how to do, connect something with passion that goes beyond the passion of work real passion that this is what I was meant to do. And this started a little bit after my son was born uh, with the changes in life and the changes in eating habits, which were for me were dramatic, were, were very different way of living. 
And I asked myself, you know, maybe there is a greater calling here. Maybe I stopped eating meat and I worked in technology and I'm doing printing. So maybe it can all work together. And I asked myself, what is the angle? What can I contribute that is very unique to me and very right for what I'm doing? And that took time because that's a very scary thought. Because you're saying, am I that person, that crazy person to do these kind of things? Am I going to go around the world telling people that I'm working on a 3D printer of meat? Imagine, you know, we're now in an age that we can have this discussion. Imagine two years ago, talking with people and saying, I'm going to 3D print meat. You know, people didn't know, besides the small community and, and people in the USA, Beyond Meat and Impossible were not as big as they are. And the, the alternative meat, clean meat movement was not as big as it is today. And crazy ideas. Now we have a lot of crazy companies. And so crazy idea like 3D printer meat suddenly sounds mainstream. For me, there is something that I took from my journey is that I decided to, to do what I'm doing now in a single moment. I went out of the shower. I told my wife, I'm quitting my job tomorrow. And I went and I quit my job. What steps did you have to take to feel comfortable enough to get to that decision? I mean, there's a lot of people in our network who want to do the same thing and probably look to you as an inspiration. But was there something that you built around yourself, a safety net? Did you raise some money? Did you put some money aside? What did you need to feel comfortable to say, okay, I'm going to go and put my resignation in today? Exactly the opposite. The decision to quit my job, the moment that I said, okay, now I need to quit my job, was, let's say, the worst moment from a safety net perspective to do that. I had my second son. And usually people, when they have the first child, they start to plan differently. You know, more stability, more safety net. When they have a second child, you're deep. If you have a day job, then you'll never quit. If you have a corporate career, you'll never quit. But I said, if I'm not going to do it now, today, today, this moment, it will never happen. And I will find myself 10 years from now and 20 years from now, I'm doing what I'm doing now. And there is something that I really need to do. So it doesn't matter if you have saving or you have support from, from investors and you have IP and you, or you already raised money, you need to quit your job at that point of time because I knew this will make me hungry and committed. Now I really have to succeed in what I'm doing. Now I really have something at stake and I need to, to find a way to be happy personally and contribute to the world, which is very important, and to support my family. And for me, in my perspective, that's the only way to be committed to what you're doing. And it's very easy to have a day job and to think about your side project, but you're actually spending 12 hours a day on your day job and you need some time to your family. So who is going to be the CEO of the startup? I'm telling to people, I'm not taking responsibility of people's actions and I don't think people actually listen to what I say, but the more hungry you are, the less options you have, you can be a more successful entrepreneur. So that removal of a safety net gives you that drive to go out there, inspire others to join your team, get the funding that you need to grow. That's what you'd recommend is, is sort of uh, not relying on the perfect scenario, but just go do it and build it along the way. But it depends on something. I'll tell you what is the safety net. There is a very important safety net. And the safety net is knowing that this is what you have to do. If you know that this is what you have to do, so I told my wife, uh, will it be okay if we'll have a smaller home or we need to go to live with my parents and we won't have money to do this and this and this and this and this. And she said, this is what you need to do. It's what you want to do, right? So, so of course, you, you need to do it. You're the one that needs to do it and you need to do it now. So who cares about where we live? And you have the support, but, but it's internal. The support is internal. I'm in this now for two years, Okay. I'm driving on my way to work 
And I see people, they know they have to go to this work today. So in that sense, you know, it's very scary, very intense, very ego depleting. But I know that this is what I need to do. And this is what I need to do for the coming decade, at least. Then it's very easy. And we had an amazing period of time in the startup. I think we have now the best period in, in a startup life, in a startup journey. But there's also very difficult moments. There can be very small, difficult moments, but, but you really, really, really have this tool to, to overcome them. And in the early days, they are more profound. Things that I stressed for weeks. In the early days, today, I sweep them away in a minute. What were some of the things that you were stressing about in the early days or some of the challenges that you thought might have ended redefined meat? When you work in a corporate world, you usually put yourself in a situation that you know what you're doing. And not a lot of people, they come to work and they say, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I'm a complete failure. And when you start a startup, you have a problem that you need to do so many things for the first time. So personally, you're not confident that you know what you're doing. And to add to that, every person that you meet almost tells you that what you're doing is wrong and you don't know how to do it. It's a very common experience when you talk to entrepreneurs, you meet with somebody for the first time in life. And they come from a different industry, they come from a different perspective, and they tell you why what you're doing is completely stupid and you don't know how to do it in a very articulate way. And it's very convincing. You, you see this expert or the people with experience, and after five minutes, they break down everything that you built for a week or a, or, or a year. And then you have a challenge of going back again and again and again. Because when you start a startup, you don't have all the answers. If you had the answers then there would be another company already with these answers. And you're faced with uncertainty all of the time. And we didn't know how to 3D print meat. And then we opened the company. We opened the company to learn how to 3D print meat. And we didn't know what would be the business model because we need to find how to 3D print meat to build a business model. And you have so big questions and we still have tremendous questions. Somebody needs to be carrying the weight of the question. And that's always, not always, but it's usually the entrepreneur and the CEO and everybody comes to you for answers. Everybody told us that a 3D printing company in the food industry will never raise money. And 3D printed meat, people told me, it's, it's a stupid idea. Can't you find a better idea? You look like an intelligent person. Finding the right people with technological experience that will be willing to quit their job to join a 3D printed meat startup. I used to tell people that we'll talk with butchers. We'll talk with butchers. We'll have butchers' friends, butchers helping us. And, and people told me, you'll go to butchers and they will kick you out because butchers sell meat. Why would they want to talk with somebody who's 3D printing meat? We went to chefs. By the way, this still happens. With chefs, it's very difficult. Some chefs tell us, we don't want to serve meat alternatives. We don't believe in that. Why are you working on an alternative to meat? You can eat vegetables if you don't want to eat meat. And so these are really big challenges. And of course, in technology, you always have challenges. If, if you work in technology and you really believe in technology and also investors that invest in technology, they want to know what is your challenges, not only to see if you're going to succeed or not, but how difficult it will be for others to copy or to do it better than you are. And this is why most of the things that we do fail. The part of the technological development is to fail a lot. And it's a strange sense than, than working in a job and getting a bonus and having a presentation when everybody said it's a great presentation. It's easy to give great presentations. Developing technology is much more difficult. 
how did you get to that stage of uh, before you started recruiting your first hire? What steps did you take to validate your idea and then eventually convince your first hire? For six months, my partner and I, we would meet in coffee shops. I had this makeshift lab in my kitchen, a makeshift lab in my parents' garage. I built a 3D printer and I mixed ingredients. I'm not a food technologist, of course. I mix ingredients to see that there is any value in even the concept of 3D printing food and meat. And I experimented in things that I didn't know anything about. I went to the market. I bought red food coloring and I bought some protein, you know, not even protein isolate. I just brought from a health store and I just played around with what I thought were the biggest questions. And the biggest questions were not how you make a steak because making a steak is too far. Can we improve texture and can we improve flavor and flavor delivery and also color by composing plant-based meat through a 3D printer? How do you construct a 3D printer so I did it myself and how you mix the things. And then I made some experiments after a while that showed some technical elements that really impressed food technologists. I showed it to them and I said, wow, how you did it. And I told them, but it's not edible and it's not tasty. But I said, yeah, but the fact that you have a cooked plant-based meat product that is red and juicy after cooking is a very good trait to have. That took a long time because, you know, sitting in your home without a job, without stability, without salary, just making experiments all day can look like a big, big waste of time, especially when you're not an expert there. Uh, so this is one part. The second part is just talk with anybody who, who was willing to talk with me. I drove one, four hours in Israel. It's a lot in Israel just to meet with this uh, food technology professor and he told me, listen, I've been dying to do a 3D printed food product for a very long time, but I'm not able to convince anybody that this is a valid project. So maybe you can help in doing that and just meeting with people and talking with people and going to meetups and, and exactly like the textbook of what you should do. I don't think it gave me confidence that we have amazing technology because, you know, when we had food technologists and mechanical engineers in one day, they did more than I did in the six months. But it gave me confidence that this is what I should do. This is what I really need to do. So this was you in your parents' garage with a self-built 3D printing machine, making things using ingredients from the grocery. Is that right? Yeah. And my partner, my co-founder, Adam, coffee shops, ideation, building presentations, doing things like that. But yeah, my wife was even in maternity leave. So I would sit in the kitchen and, and push in like... It's meshing rice and mixing it with uh, some uh, gluten and trying to print it and very crazy things. One experiment at one day, I ate it with a glass of wine. It was really exciting. I made a steak and I ate it with a glass of wine. It was disgusting, but but it was much closer to a steak than anything that I had in plant based. And I actually posted the meat in a Facebook group of meat lovers, and I got a lot of likes. And they asked me where did I get the meat. I, I was very proud that they. Avid meat lovers think it's meat, at least from the pictures. You said that you paid the salary of your early employees from your own savings, and you postponed raising funding till uh, as late as possible. Why did you decide to take this route? Why not just try to find funding as soon as possible? First, we pay very low salaries, so it wasn't so complicated. And people are willing to work on an exciting project in, in service that are not so high because they offer much more. I'm not talking only about equity and the long-term potential. I'm talking about excitement and, and being 
a very important part of, of a very small team and, and a really, really fun project. But first, I think raising money, when you quit your job, like I did and like I recommend people to do, it's a personal decision and you have complete freedom because you can just say at one day, I made a mistake and go back to your day job. When you raise money from other people, this is a level of, of responsibility that is much bigger than quitting your job. I'm responsible. I have responsibility to my family, to myself. But people trusted me in a very early stage with their money. Some of them have a lot of money, but some of them, they really, really, really believed in what we are doing and the potential. But they invest in an extremely risky investment. You know, I'm devoting my life, so I'm sure it's going to pay off. But, but it's a completely different moment. And this is the point of no return. For me, quitting your job, opening a startup, I really wanted to have confidence that we're on the right track. And also really, really to, to keep this hungry mentality, to raise only what we need now. And many people, including my friend, they like to think we need to raise X amount of money and then we'll start working on the project. Or then we are able to do it. And actually, if you have... 1,000 euros, you can do something with it. And if you have 10,000, you can do something with it. So you don't need to raise a lot of money. And I think if you do it, first, it's very right for you as, as an entrepreneur. When we went out of my garage, we went to another garage, tiny place. We didn't have an office. It was a tiny, 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 very cheap place. And it enabled us to work a lot and progress a lot without spending almost any money. And we raised really, really little amount of money I met many investors that I said, even if they will invest, I don't want to spend too much time with them now for the next few years. We have the most amazing, supportive investors. I can pick up the call to extremely smart people and they will help me and they will advise me and they trust me and, and I trust them. They saw that, that we're not raising money to raise money. We raise money because we have something that we really want to do and we need the money to do it. I like to think that we still have the same mentality. And it's really important. But at some point of time, you must raise money. This is also something that one of my mentors told me. At some point of time, you're wasting time and you're spending things the wrong way if you don't have money to do it the right way. If I would continue to develop our formulation by myself and not hire food technologies, we would never be at this point. So sometimes you just need money to bring on the right person, to bring on the right machine. For example, now we bought a machine to start the scale-up of our manufacturing. The processes to formulate what we print, our formulation, became a bottleneck to development. And you need money for that. You need money to buy equipment. You need money to, to pay people. You need to buy ingredients. And also, Arman, something important to say, when you're raising money, you hear a lot of no's, so it takes time. And how do you feel, I mean, as a, as the CEO of your company, you have now, uh, how many employees do you have now? 24. You've raised money, for, uh, you raised the 6 million seed round led by CPT Capital, one of the first investors in Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. What is this responsibility like? You've switched from the safe corporate career, eventually taking the switch to just being yourself and your co-founder in your garage. And now you have 24 employees, investors, and everyone's relying on you. Do you feel that weight every day? Or has it just become so integrated into your everyday life? I think that if you look at my day-to-day, -day, I think it was more busy and more interesting and more important than my entire corporate career. So the life in a startup really brings you into reality and the new normal extremely fast. You're getting used to doing a lot of things. You're getting used to working at a very fast pace. And the growth 
you don't feel it. You know, you look six months ago, we were six people and the growth is extremely fast and things that are happening very, very organically. This is one thing that is exciting and challenging, but, but the most fun part of being a CEO of your own startup, that if things go well, the job changes every day. You grow very fast. I think there are big differences because you said that they are all relying on me. I have people to rely on. I have experts in their fields. When they come to me, they come because they need help or they need to make a decision, but they don't come to me to teach them how to analyze our meat or, or to build our machine. Now I'm more of a CEO in a 25-people company, but we're now planning how we're going to, to triple this number in about a year. One thing that, that happens when the company grows is somebody needs to look three steps ahead and some people need to look at the day-to-day. So I already need to be in the future while looking at the present. But I had the chance to interview and, and meet and, and hire everybody that works in the company uh, together with other people. And the people that work in the company, all of them, I think besides one, came from our network. Either people we know for many years or people that, that our friends know for many years. And we're trying to build this very unique place of work that everybody's on the same wavelength. And that, I think, is, is the easiest part of, of work. This is not a, not a challenging part of work. I also I, I manage people in my life. I manage team. My first job, not in a restaurant, when I was 16... Today is the, is the first time that I manage more people that I managed than, than when I was 16, that my team is bigger. This is really easy and fun part. You know, bringing people that know what they're doing to help you with your vision and your dream, that's the most incredible part of, of an entrepreneur's superpower. I need to do something, and I know I need to do it, but there's many people that can do it much better than I do, and I convince them to come work with me. That's amazing. Do you feel a sense of accomplishment today or do you feel it's just really the, the tip of the iceberg for where you want to go? No, I only have the gap between where we need to be and where we are today. A sense of accomplishment, I, I think first it never happens. So what are we going to accomplish here? We need to change the world. It will take a lot of years and it's extremely difficult. And we need to have our stakes all over the world and we, have, we need to have a business and we need to grow the team. Looking at what we accomplish, it's very easy and very dangerous because what we accomplish is not interesting anymore. Okay, It's what we need more to accomplish. If we have a food product that is good, I don't need to taste it anymore. Nobody in the company needs to taste it. We need to taste the things that are not good to improve them. And it's true to, to everything that we're doing. This is something that is a part of personalities. Do you ever feel that you accomplished something? Do you ever feel satisfied? No, we're very hungry. It's very important to, to remain hungry. Yeah. And for last question, what advice would you have to entrepreneurs, people really working in multinationals that might want to make the switch to do their own thing? What last words of wisdom would you leave them with? You know what I'm going to say. First thing, look in the mirror now, if you're listening to this, look in the mirror and tell yourself, tomorrow I'm going to go to work and quit my job. And it needs to be tomorrow. It doesn't need to be the day after tomorrow or when something will happen. Do it today. This is the joke. The real thing is when I quit my job and when I started this world of having a startup, I met many CEOs of startups. And all of them 100% helped me extremely. And I didn't know why. I didn't understand why people helped me and why people gave me advice and why people made connections. And then somebody told me, they were all in your position. They were all where you were. And 
either somebody helped them or they wished that somebody would help them. And people that have a startup, it doesn't matter what's the stage. If you tell them I have a startup, I want your advice, they will give you an advice. And don't be afraid to, to speak out what you want to do because if you want to be an entrepreneur, you will speak out your, your vision even if it's very difficult to achieve. And startup CEOs and entrepreneurs are the ones that can help you and can be your, your support in those early days. And it's really amazing if you found what you think you need to do. It's really easy to do it. Once you decide, once you quit your job, it's really easy to do it. It's the easiest thing that you will do. It's very difficult, but it will be easy. And maybe last question for me. When will I have my chance to have the first redefined meat steak of my own? You're actually in luck because the real answer is that when you come to Israel, but the moment we have a lift of the travel bans and, and the complexities, I have confirmed plans for Switzerland, Germany, and France. These are, are the first ones. And the countries that we're going to launch to test in the market and to launch are going to be these countries in, in that order. And, and it's going to happen faster than you think. Israel is already opening up a lot of the travel. I don't know about Switzerland, but somebody that is in Israel, everybody that hears this or interested, we have too much meat to eat by ourselves in the lab. So we're happy to give people tasting and to get their feedback. Perfect. Well, I'll be waiting for you at the airport in Switzerland uh, to get my steak when you guys arrive here. That's the nice thing. Nobody that misses meat will say no to a good steak if it doesn't come from an animal. This is something that we, are, we all agree on. Thanks for tuning in to The Secret Sauce by Foodag. If you enjoyed it, please give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or share this with a friend. To find out more about Foodhack's global community of food entrepreneurs or to sponsor a future episode, head to foodhack.global slash podcast. Write to me at armin at foodhack.ch. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay hungry. Thank <laughs> you.